This is the Build Wealth Canada podcast with Cornell Schreiber, session number 12. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell, and welcome back to the Build Wealth Canada show. This is part two of my interview on how to invest in Canada with author and investor Dr. John Robertson. Now, in part one, we covered the beginner to intermediate level questions, perfect for those just getting started on their investment journey. In part two, we take it up a notch and get into the more advanced level questions. So if you missed part one, you can download the episode by going to buildwealthcanada.ca slash 11, just a number 11, and you can get all the show notes, links, and resources there too. Lastly, just a quick reminder that the giveaway is still open. So to be entered into the draw to receive one of the copies of John's book for free, you just have to go to buildwealthcanada.ca. You then sign up for the free newsletter so that you'll be emailed when new expert interviews like this one come out. And when you sign up, you'll get an instant email from me plus a free gift. And then all you have to do is just reply to that email and tell me what you'd like covered on a future episode of the show. Once you do that, I'll automatically enter you into the draw. So once again, go to buildwealthcanada.ca to sign up, ask me a question, and you'll be automatically entered into the giveaway to get John's book. That's all for now. Let's get into part two of the interview. Speaking of bonds, so right now, obviously, we've got really, really low interest rates. And do you still recommend investing in bonds? Obviously, if, if, if the interest rates go up, bond prices are going to go down. And so there seems to be a lot of individuals that are concerned about investing in bonds. They don't want to invest in bonds because we feel the interest rate can only go up from here. What are your thoughts on that in terms of investing in bonds, considering everything as it is right now in its present state? So a great point towards that is about five years ago, people would have been saying the same thing and interest rates have only gone down <laughs> from there. I know. Yeah, I know. So when interest rates were like, what, two and a half percent, people were like, this is insanely low. It can't go any lower. Now it's like one yeah. and a half. Like, oh, yeah. It just yeah. keeps going lower. So on, on the one hand, you just never know where the bottom is going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the long term, even after you suffer some capital losses in your in your bonds, you should, over the long term, get about the current yield to maturity in your bond funds. So it's going to be a bit of a more rocky ride than you're used to in what you're considering the safe side of your portfolio. But mm-hmm. you should still be getting, after about 10 years, about that 1.5% or so out of your bond funds. Mm-hmm. Uh, one option and alternative is to be looking at high interest savings account if you just want something to act as a buffer. In that case, you're not going to get one of the advantages of bonds, which is that when interest rates go further down, the bond funds go up, which tends to happen when markets get royally and uh, people start experiencing a little bit more fear and caution. They start flooding back towards bonds, the bond prices go up. So as the stock prices are going down, your bond funds are going up, which is great for rebalancing. Uh, On non-registered accounts, um, it will get a little bit complicated with your accounting and the tax situation. Uh, If interest rates do eventually start going back up and you start having a combination of higher interest and capital losses in your bond funds coming out, in which case for the non-registered part, it might make a little more sense to be looking at GICs and high interest savings accounts uh, at this point. But I really am uncomfortable trying to prognosticate and predict the future that way. So, you know, kind of of do whatever and and expect that it's not necessarily going to be as good in the future as it was in the past. But Mm -hmm. it's not a strong, strong case to get out of bond funds. It's 
you still need something safe and acting as ballast in your portfolio. Mm-hmm. Oh, and just for our uh, beginner investors out there, when John's talking about registered versus unregistered, uh, so if it's registered, it's basically saying um, that it's in a TFSA or it's an RRSP, so some sort of tax shelter, basically. That's right. Whereas, yeah. whereas if it's unregistered, it's, it's basically just kind of sitting in your um, like your brokerage account, not not in any sort of tax shelter, right? And and so that's kind of the big difference. There's very yeah. big tax implications depending on which way you go. Yeah. So. Uh it's kind of a strange term, non-registered, but mm-hmm. almost everything that people are really familiar with are non-registered accounts. Your savings account that isn't part of a TFSA or whatever is a non-registered account. Your checking account is a non-registered account. Um, if you uh, buy an investment property, that's a non-registered <laughs> investment. Mm-hmm. And you have to pay taxes on gains that you make uh, in non-registered accounts because they're not sheltered from taxes. So that's what it means is the part that isn't sheltered from taxes, so your tax-sheltered accounts or your TFSA and RSP and couple of dollars. Uh, these uh, non-registered ones, when you make gains, when you get dividends paid out, when you have interest payments, you have to pay tax on that. And for the bottom funds, um, you're going to have what's called the capital loss, where that's going to help you offset some other gains, but you're also going to have interest income, which you're going to have to pay tax on. And so that gets kind of complicated. Um, and that's what uh, we're talking about here. <laughs> but, yeah. but that's kind of an advanced topic. I wouldn't worry too much about that, especially if you've got like a really long-term time horizon. Right. It'll play itself out over 20, 30 years. And, yeah. and I would think that somebody in their, let's say, 20s, 30s, uh, you know, even high 30s, I mean, there's a good chance that their RSP, TFSA probably isn't maxed out for, for most yeah. people. I think that's probably a safe assumption to make. And so in those cases, you generally... Uh, you should be putting money into these registered accounts, uh, basically for their tax sheltering purposes, just so that you can you can grow and save a lot of money on, on taxes. Would you agree with that, John? Absolutely, especially the yeah. TFSA. There's no trade off on the TFSA, mm-hmm. none at all. You, if you need to take the money back out, you get the room back later. If you need to, um, you don't need to think about whether the room is going to be more valuable to you in the future versus now. It's just go ahead use TFSA. Mm-hmm. So. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's more so. I guess if you're you're a young person, I don't know. Maybe you're an investment banker. You know, you're young. You're making solid six figures already. You're maxing out all your TFSAs and RSP. Then, okay, now, fine. Start worrying about unregistered accounts. Uh, you know, things things of that nature, right? Because you can't maybe shelter uh, all the money you're making at that yeah. point, right? Yeah. Or <laughs> if you started saving and you were making money that didn't count towards uh, making RSP room. Um, mm-hmm. And you wanted to save it somehow before the TFSA came along, you would have a non-registered right. account. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, but it, but I th- I'm, yeah, for mo- for most people though, they they don't yeah. have both of those maxed. They don't have RSP and TFSA maxed. Like You'd have to be investing quite a substantial amount. So um, so yeah, definitely. The reason I bring it up is I just wouldn't want anybody to get overwhelmed. Like okay, this is getting a little too much now. Uh, you know, all these sort of tax implications of registered versus unregistered. Uh, for the most for I would probably well eighty percent of people, ninety percent of people, it's it's just focus on the registered account yeah. basically. Yeah, and you're not gonna have to worry about all these uh, little tax issues and I, I like to talk about them just so like people are aware that they're there. Exactly. Because once you do move out to your non registered or your cash account or margin mm-hmm. account or whatever your particular institution calls it, uh, then you are gonna have to worry about the taxes and the onus is on you as the taxpayer, as it is right. with everything, to report your income to the government. <laughs> exactly. John, um, not sure if you how how into these you are, but can you talk a little bit maybe about real estate investment trusts? Some individuals are sort of considering those. 
as opposed to bonds and 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 you know it's kind of a hot topic these days as well do you have any thoughts on those so i do uh, i do personally invest in reits as well um that's in part because i'm a renter so i don't have any other real estate exposure uh within my asset allocation so that's to get me that um they do provide a nice steady income in terms of spinning out those distributions. Those, uh, they're not quite eligible dividends, but they're distributions that come out of those uh, funds. I'm not sure that I would ever count them as like a bond alternative because they are a lot riskier than bonds. Uh, you're not, if you're talking technical terms, you're not within the cap, you're further out in the capital structure than a bond is. So if they, these guys run into trouble, they're going to cut your dividends first, or your distributions, pardon me, first, and you have some risk of losing money. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what else to say about that, sorry. Yeah, no, no, that's great. That's great. Yeah, sorry, I, I didn't send you that question beforehand. I just thought... Uh... That's just something that uh, kind of has been being talked a lot about these days, and I just want to see what your take is on uh, on those, especially since some are considering those as an alternative to bonds. So I'm really glad you brought up uh, sort of the the difference in risk that you should not consider it necessarily as an an alternative to a bond that has only upside, and you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a reason you can make about five percent or so on a REIT versus about one and a half percent or so on a government bond. Like it's because exactly. there's more risk involved. I do think they're a good thing to include as part of your portfolio, especially if you don't already have a lot of real estate exposure. Um, I didn't mention them in the book because a lot of people do have that real estate exposure and they don't need that extra complication of looking at REITs as well. And right. it's it's a really like fine thing because as you add more of these asset classes, you add more complication, you add more risk of failure just from screwing up the implementation of your plan. Exactly. And, I, and there isn't a really clear-cut case for exactly when you should be looking at them. So... Like I said, I do have a few myself, but I don't think that it's something that everybody needs to look at. It's more of a niche asset class. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. No, that's great. That's great. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on that. Um, John, can you tell us a little bit about what you yourself are investing in right now? So talking about your portfolio composition, what ETFs are you investing in right now, um, whether you'd recommend them or not, how they've been working out for you. Can you just talk to us a little bit and about that? Yeah, so this is a fantastic do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> so uh, part of it is that I have, depending on how, whether you count TD Mutual Funds and TD Waterhouse as separate institutions, I have accounts at six different institutions. <laughs> uh, and that's partly because I opened accounts everywhere to get experience with them firsthand uh, for writing the book and for helping people out. So, you know, I've got right. an iTrade account, a Questrade account, a TD Waterhouse account, an RBC Direct Investing account, TD Mutual Funds account, and a Tangerine account, oh, and a PC Financial account, seven. So <laughs> I'm just, I'm everywhere. <laughs> so my portfolio looks like this huge, complicated uh, mess. And on top <laughs> of that, I started as an active investor. So I've got my registered accounts, my TFSA and RSP, almost entirely uh, indexed now. And they're looking pretty simple and straightforward. But my non-registered accounts have a mix of index funds, uh, of high interest savings accounts, of uh, active individual funds as part of my active portfolio that I'm slowly like winding myself out of. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's that mess. And then on top of that, I use a combination of TDE series funds and ETFs. Uh, I like the TDE series funds. They're a little bit more expensive than ETFs, but they're so much easier to use. Uh, and I can just basically throw money at them. So I've got a couple hundred bucks extra 
this paycheck. I just throw money at a TDE series fund, uh, especially when markets are crashing. I love TDE series funds because I can just go and buy like a hundred dollars every day that the market goes down. It makes me feel better about market crashes. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't make any difference in the long term. That's just something I do to feel better about we, it. We all have our coping mechanisms. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, I'm buying at a little bit lower price. Well, you know, buying a hundred dollars on on uh, <laughs> investments of several tens of thousands is not really making a big difference whether I'm doing it one day at a time or just saving up until the end of the month or end of the quarter or at the end of the year and just throwing it all in at once with an ETF. And then after my TDE series builds up a little bit, I then liquidate those and then roll it into an ETF. So it's it's a little bit of a mess on my own side. I've laid out a much simpler plan in the book for people that doesn't involve having all these accounts everywhere and uh, these combinations of mutual funds and ETFs and whatnot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So. No, that's, I'm glad you went through all that work for us. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I, I remember reading your book and I thought, uh, and I even, I remember even thinking uh, like, Oh, it'd be, inter- it'd be great if before your book came out, I thought oh, it'd be great if someone kind of evaluated all these different offerings. And I thought, Oh, maybe I should do it. And then I thought of, what a headache that would be you're opening up all these different brokerage accounts and all the uh, it would just it'd be so uh, it, it's it'd be a lot of work for sure so i'm, I'm glad i'm glad you took the and bullet. taxes are going to be fun this year oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so so uh so on behalf of canadians everywhere thank you for taking the the bullet for our financial uh <laughs> investing team here and, and exploring all these different options and and finally, uh, picking uh, <laughs> yeah. so that, so that you could come up with sort of the the good recommendations as to okay, like, like we like we mentioned already to all the uh, listeners, basically John's narrowed it down to three basically three different buckets, three different options that you have, right, John? Yeah. Uh, in your in your book, and so you don't have to go through all sort of that pain and trying different discount brokerages and non-discount brokerages. You can just follow what he does, and uh, and and I I feel very confident. Uh, Actually, it was great reading your um, your book as well because it it sort of echoed that what I was doing was was correct after you've already done all this legwork and researching all these other places. So so thank you very much. I so, I sincerely appreciate it, and I'm I'm sure others do as well. <laughs> uh, yeah. So John, um, also over the years, uh, just you've been investing for for a while now. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what has worked well for you, what hasn't worked well for you from from the investment side? Just something maybe we can we can learn from. Uh, yeah, so I started as an active investor, and that actually did work out well for me. Um, I should note that I am a little bit obsessive. I scroll through uh, uh, bro- uh, broker reports and also the company's financials directly through all the footnotes and all that. So I'd like I put in that level of work when You're I was one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. when I was active <laughs> investing. Um, and I actually did fairly well with it. I did beat the market for a number of years and then started to not beat the market for a number of years. And the big difference was that active investing takes a ton of time. So right. I started when I was in grad school, when I had a 10-minute walk to work um, and when I didn't have a little girl <laughs> running around right. my feet. So now I've got a daughter. Now I've got a full-time job that I have to commute to. And I just don't have the time to do it anymore. So not only is um, index investing a great thing to go with because – I can't be sure that I'm going to have the ability to continue to beat the market, but it also takes a ton of time, whereas index investing takes hardly any at all. So that's kind of one thing that I've got going for me now is, um, you know, aside from cleaning up all those multiple accounts, the index investing is a lot easier, a lot less time, a lot less, um, you know, clock cycles in my brain that are being taken up by it. It is great. Yeah. Um, 
so, you know, you always have to think about that. And even when I was an active investor, I started with, as soon as the TFSA came out, started with that as a um, passive fund and my RSP when I started that as passive investing, index investing, because I always had that fear in the back of my mind, that thinking that maybe I think I'm smarter than I am. Maybe I've just been lucky this last year or two or three and I'm not actually one of those 1% or 0.1% of people that are able to consistently beat the market. Then, of course, I've seen that once I got busy, I sure as hell wasn't one of right. the people that could continue to beat the market. And so I've been unwinding my active portfolio a little bit more and more. Um, yeah, so yeah, that time component is a huge thing for active investing and something to keep in mind, uh, especially when you start having kids, you're going to have a lot of stuff. Yeah. You just had a little one. Uh, nine well, congratulations! Ago, so. Thank you. Yeah. So, so yes, I can I can also relate. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of one thing is um, when uh, when talking about active investing versus not uh, maybe someone that's fresh out of let's say business school or something like that. Um, I would say if they were to ask for advice, I'd say look if if you're want to get into this field where this is going to be your career, where where you want to work on Bay Street, you want to I mean this is going to be basically your your life in terms of your career um, in this acting investment uh, industry, uh, then then okay fine you know then then do that. That's your you know your kind of uh, you know you're learning, you're working hard at it, you're perfecting your craft right. And, and and that might turn out to be very profitable for you because you're not only investing, but you know you're also sort of building your expertise in the matter, right? Maybe so it could lead to job prospects, things of that nature. But for the other ninety nine point nine percent of us who, like like you said, have children <laughs> or or a child, right? Um, who have who don't, other jobs? Who don't uh, find it entertaining? <laughs> who, yeah, who don't enjoy it? That's yeah. thing. You have to you have to love it, right? You have yeah. to really love it, uh, right? So for so for everyone else that out there. Um, like, like for, like in my case, I, I love ETFs because, um, I find I can grow the net worth much more by growing businesses as opposed to reading financial reports. Right. And, and so that, that, that's one of the reasons why I love ETFs. And I think for others, the same applies, whether you're an entrepreneur or not, um, you can just, there's so it's, it's time, right. Is where do you want to invest your time? And if you're not going to give it a hundred to 10%, then just just go with the ETFs already. Go or yeah. you know or go with the, the you know the, the broad market indexes. Just buy those, and it will save you so much time. You're still doing the, you know the right thing investment wise. Um, so yeah, no, f- for sure. I think that's um, that's a really 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 good point. Yeah, and if you really feel the need to uh, scratch that active investing itch, if you just have a couple of ideas, you can always do what's called core and explore, where you have most of your portfolio set uh-huh. up. You know whatever percent you want to put it at ninety percent, at allocated to index investing, and then you just pick one or two or three or whatever many of your best active investing ideas. So then you only have to put a little bit of time into those couple of ones. And then also if you screw it up and you don't manage to outperform the index, you're not torpedoing your entire uh, retirement future and whatnot. Exactly. Yeah. So it's almost like a hobby at that point, yeah. right? And you're, but you know, you have some money and you have some skin in the game and makes it more fun, makes it exciting. And, and like you said, you have to enjoy it. That's the, that's the big thing, right? Um, but I, I'm sure you'd rather spend time with your with your daughter than uh, read financial statements, probably. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so, so, I and, and I'm, I'm the same way. So I, I can see why um, sort of doing the more passive investing is definitely definitely the way to go. Yeah. So, John, was there any point in your investing career that you felt that you sort of maybe lost confidence a little bit? Like I don't know, 2008 comes to mind, right? Was there any sort of time where you started questioning what you were doing, what you're investing? Um, just maybe if you have any advice there um, 
because I mean, inevitably, inevitably, we are all going to reach sort of that next tough spot, you know, could be tomorrow, could be 10 years from now, but it's going to happen. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I mean, 2008 was a tough time, like seeing these huge market drops day after day, um, week after week, and it just kept coming. Uh, and it was hard because you're thinking like the world is not really ending. These are eventually going to be profitable companies again. Not necessarily all of them. There will be some that will go bankrupt and did go bankrupt through the crisis. But mm-hmm. a lot of them are going to be coming roaring back. Uh, never expected it to be quite so strong that after just a couple of years we'd be making new highs. But uh, you know, I figured intellectually that this was going to happen. And then emotionally feeling that like stone in your gut just like drop out to the bottom, uh, seeing all that red every day. Uh, so that was hard. And I found that you know, really reinforcing my uh, higher level thinking, my this is going to eventually come better by doing that like a couple hundred dollars or even just a hundred dollars a day out of out of the safe stuff and into the risky stuff through the through the TDE series mutual funds uh, really helped me like stay on track. I was like, no, I'm committed to this. I'm buying as this goes lower. Every day goes lower, I'm buying a little bit more, a little bit more and um, staying on top of it. And uh, that's also where I found that uh, having a little bit of active investing helped too because I was able to pull up some of these companies' balance sheets and uh, towards the depths of the crisis, late 2008, you were starting to see what Benjamin Graham called net nets where companies were trading for less than their liquid assets on their balance sheet. And it was like, okay, this is just getting crazy now. People are just throwing <laughs> babies out with the bathwater. Yeah. And that's where I did particularly well as an active investor was just kind of snapping up some of those companies that had just been sold off out of complete fear rather than you know mm-hmm. rational adjustments for a, for a big recession. Right, right. So someone's not looking at the ratios within the company. Just yeah. we're just going to sell because I'm freaking out, basically. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and like, yeah, well, if I was yeah. able to buy all the shares in this company. Uh, I would only need like, you know, for one particular small cap, $30 million to do that. And they've got $100 million in cash in the bank for uh, yeah. that they had just raised from uh, equity offering not exactly. like eight months ago. Like, <laughs> yeah, this yeah. is just almost a no-brainer in some of those cases. Um, yeah. You know, it, it gets a lot harder for a lot of other cases. And then you also have to swallow, like, what do they know that I don't? <laughs> oh, so, oh, exactly. oh yeah there's always there's, yeah, there's, always, there's always those yeah. feelings so yeah. uh that, that was very hard um the being the index part was <laughs> a little bit easier because i could just throw money at it every day and be like yes i'm buying this as it goes down and i'm gonna get through this and you know i'm young it'll come out okay right and right. it did mm-hmm. and well, it'll crash again and it'll come out okay again and i'm i'm fully expecting that and each time i expect it's gonna get a little bit easier Mm-hmm, so, for sure you, be, uh, you become desensitized to it exactly <laughs> and all these news stories just fade into the background so quickly now like mm-hmm. uh there was that debt crisis and the debt ceiling crisis in the u.s not so long ago and i mean people hardly even remember that now mm-hmm. it was a what was it 10 something percent correction in the stock markets at the time and that just quickly worked itself out yeah uh, and so at that time i was like thinking there's always that part of you that's reading these news stories and going, ooh, right. what if they don't? Like, what if the whole U.S. economy stalls because they can't it fix this? Yeah. 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 And you're like, ah, I really don't think it's going to happen with that. <laughs> uh, I think some of these investors are uh, panicking a little bit when they're selling. So, again, I'm just going to shift a little bit from bonds to equities um, according to my, like, this is the moment I'm going to choose to rebalance that so that I can 
pick up a little bit more of the equities there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, John, um, we talked about broad market indexes. Now, what about some of the other sort of ETFs you can buy, other other indexes as well, not necessarily broad markets? So um, one that comes to mind, for example, is you can buy uh, small cap uh, indexes, right? And some will say that, okay, well, if you buy small cap indexes, you are exposing yourself to more volatility, but long term, those actually outperform some of these broad market indexes. So um, can you speak to that a little bit? So, so not just regarding small cap, but there's obviously all these other indexes that you can get into that you can buy into um can you maybe share your thoughts on that sure so in theory i get the argument i agree with the argument whether you're talking about small cap funds or small cap companies so these are smaller companies that are supposed to have more growth potential some of them are going to not do very well but a few of them are going to be the small comp like the, the next big companies that are starting off small and you're getting in on the ground floor or whatever um so you're going to get a little bit more volatility that way but potentially more growth and historically there has been more growth out of that and then there's other asset classes that have some of these uh, great theoretical advantages or other etfs so uh the simplest etf that we can build the simplest index fund that we can build is to just buy all the companies that are out there in proportion to their size and that's great for helping to make the fund really passive and keep fees low because as the companies grow or shrink, their uh, proportion of the fund also grows and shrinks proportionally. So you don't need to be rebalancing within the fund uh, very much at all. Whereas some in indexes instead say, well, the companies that get really big are maybe getting overvalued and the companies that are getting really small are maybe getting undervalued. So we'll just buy the top 500 companies in the world but uh, distribute them equally. And I can sort of see the argument for that, but then you have higher fees to actually slice and dice them. Uh, real return bonds are another one where you have some inflation protection built into your bonds and then they don't correlate very well with either stocks or conventional bonds. So it kind of adds some more diversification to your portfolio. So there's another argument there that maybe you should include a little bit of real return bonds in your asset allocation mix well, as well. So there's all these different ways of slicing it up, all these different little sectors of asset allocation, whether you're talking about small cap funds, real return bonds, um, REITs, uh, real estate investment trusts, uh, or like emerging markets, all these different classes. And at some point, it's just a practical limitation. The fees on these smaller asset classes are higher. And of course, you want to control those fees because those fees come out of your long-term returns. Mm -hmm. So the broad market larger index funds are fantastic at getting those fees down as low as possible some of them you can get for 0.05 percent yep. like yep. practically free i think that's the vun right is that the one yeah 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 that's the one i, I and xic into, is yeah. also down that low yeah. as well <laughs> vcn so yeah um yeah. for those uh, who aren't familiar those are ticker symbols that uh we used to refer to some of these yeah. ones. So, oh yeah, for, yeah, for those yeah. listeners, uh, maybe <laughs> in case you haven't noticed, we've moved into a bit more of the advanced questions now. <laughs> so there's all these different asset classes. Yeah. yeah. All these different ETFs that you could add to your portfolio and you can make a nice little theoretical uh, justification for them that you know you could fit on a postcard. Like real return bonds don't correlate very well with regular bonds and... and uh, stocks so then you get more diversification out of that and you also get a little bit of inflation protection but in reality there's only like two funds in canada that can get you real return bonds and they're really tiny really illiquid and have higher fees than the regular bond funds so then you go well do i really need to bother with that 
Same with the small cap funds. Their fees are up over half a percent or so for those. And, um, you know, what is the expected increased return that you're getting out of that? Is it like half a percent? So mm-hmm. you're adding this different asset class just to give all of that extra return just back to the fund company. So right, right. in practical terms, it's really tough to move beyond kind of the canonical four large asset classes. Mm-hmm. You can make a really strong case for those four. It's really easy to include them. There's lots of different options and the fees are really, really low. And then when you start moving into these more esoteric options, these different um, asset allocations, and then you have to slice and dice your portfolio more, it becomes harder and harder from a practical point of view to include them. And so that's where I drew the line was that these four funds, what I call the canonical funds, because almost everyone out there has some mix of these ones. And some like preferred shares, real return bonds, small cap funds, emerging markets will appear in a few authors, but not all of them mm-hmm. uh, in their model portfolios. And so you can make the case for them, but again, practically, I don't really think it's worth it. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's good to know. So when you're talking about the four, you're referring to, to bonds, Canadian index, US index, international index. I that's right, yeah. That. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Sounds good. Uh, no, that's great. Yeah, so so in your own portfolio, you basically you don't even bother with all those sort of sub categories. You just go for the broad. You just stick with the broad market. And would you say, or do you still kind of play around a little? I, bit? I do have REITs. Oh, you do have REITs. That's right. That's right. But when it comes to like small cap or no. or things of that nature, just don't, it's not really. It's not yeah. something that. Uh, Although again, in my particular case with the Core and Explore, the 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 Explore right. part is small cap. <laughs> Gotcha, gotcha. So, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> but again, I, I'm fully comfortable that eventually I'm going to get out of all that. And right, yeah, yeah. no, that's great. No, thanks for sharing. Yeah, because that's the thing, right? You hear about these high returns, but I'm glad you brought up the point that the fees are higher for them right now too. So now you're betting a little bit that they're going to increase by more than the broad market index to offset those higher fees. Yeah. So is that going to happen? You know, you have to decide, right? What you think? So. Um, so no, I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up because it's kind of like the shiny object that may not be worth necessarily reaching for when you've already got a really really good thing going uh, with the broad market indexes. So no, that that's great. Thanks for thanks for your input on that. Um, next, I want to ask you about uh, dividends. So there are some investors who are purely dividend uh, investors, right? And, and individuals who are looking at retirement planning. Well, some will even say, I would like to. Uh, just buy dividend stocks and just live off the dividends, and, and that's the core of their strategy. Can you can you speak a little bit about sort of that dividend investing strategy versus uh, versus what you what you propose individuals do, and that is to do the the broad market indexes? Yeah, so dividend investing is such a seductive idea because of what you said there, because you get to just live off the dividends, and you don't even need to think about eating into your capital. Um, and there's a number of issues with uh, that that are kind of hidden. Um, first off, dividend investing means that you're cutting out all the s- stocks, all the companies that don't pay dividends. So you're immediately bringing down your diversification by a fairly substantial amount. Mm-hmm. And you're concentrating into some sectors because you're not just com- cutting out some of the companies, you're cutting out entire sectors in a lot of cases. Right. So you're really cutting down your diversification and you're concentrating in some of these other sectors. In Canada in particular, if you look at the uh, allocation, we're roughly a third or so in our in our broad market um, index allocated to financials, you know, the banks and some of the other financial companies that are up there in Canada. And people are already saying that our index is not very well diversified. Well, the 
index fund from iShares, the XTV, is 53% financials. So you're just really making a concentrated bet on financial stocks at that point. Right. Uh, and then with, ind with index investors, they tend to be even stronger in terms of their home bias than uh, index investors. So you're, you're looking uh, at, instead of having maybe a third of your companies out of Canada, you're looking at maybe 100% or maybe over 50% with a few from the U.S. and almost none overseas. So these people tend to have really, really concentrated portfolios, which can work for a while, but then you run the risk that it's just going to blow up on your face. Uh, if we run into a situation where, let's say, there is a housing bubble in Canada and the banks really suffer for it, if you're an index investor, you've got a third of your Canadian portfolio in banks, in Canadian banks, which is a third of your overall equity portfolio. So you're looking at like 10% in banks. So you could lose, let's say they go down by half, 5%. You're not going to lose a ton of sleep over that. Now, if you're a dividend investor and you've got 100% in Canada and 50% of it is in Canadian banks and they go down by half, you've lost 25% of your portfolio. So you're making that more concentrated bet. Right. I don't think people really appreciate that when you're uh, a dividend investor, you are making a more concentrated bet and you're losing out on some of that diversification. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are some studies, uh, there are some, there's some history showing that dividend invest investing has actually returned more than index investing over the last 10, 20, whatever years, uh, especially when you're looking at Canadian sources. And that's in part because we haven't had something like a financial sector that's paying out a lot of dividends blow up. If you look at the U.S. market, uh, index investing has actually beaten dividend investing over the last 10 years precisely because there was a higher allocation to the financials, which blew themselves up in the 2008 crisis. Exactly. So uh, that's that's the main thing. Uh, it's just such a seductive idea. I think that you need to be really, really careful with dividend investing because it's so easy to get sucked into that notion that I just live off the dividends and right, I don't need right. to ever sell a stock. And of course, the other side of that is that then you're being too conservative with your saving. If you're never selling your stocks, never living off part of the capital in retirement, then you've saved more than you needed to. And uh, you know, you're going to die and leave a bunch of money to your heirs that you could have spent yourself. Uh, right. You, know, you always have to look at that discussion to see whether you want to be doing something like that. But uh, most people would generally prefer to save just the right amount so that they have yeah, enough yeah. to live through retirement, but then not sacrifice more than they need to um, today. Yeah, no, that's great. And yeah, I mean, if when you do the math too, when you see how much you actually have to invest in dividend paying companies in order to generate enough dividend income to live off of, it is a very, very substantial amount, right? So, so, so you're not only invest. So you're, and then on top of that, there's the now lack of diversification that you're that you're taking on because you're you're just investing in those select companies that do issue those dividends. So you know, it's it's so it, it just kind of amplifies it even more. And uh, yeah, no, for sure. I'm glad uh, I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you. All right, I got another question for you sure. <laughs> regarding. Um, we talked about uh, you, you mentioned briefly about sort of uh, living off of your investments and drawing down on on sort of that initial uh, principle that you that you put into it. Um, can you talk a little bit about the four percent rule? I know we've talked about it before on the show. I'm wondering if for those who haven't maybe listened to the previous episodes, if you can maybe define the four percent rule for us, and then just give us your thoughts on on what. You're, what you think about it, or, or if maybe you, you use a different variation of it. Okay, so just to quickly define it, the 4% rule basically says um, when you get to retirement age, you look at all the money you have invested, and you take 4% of that, and you live off it. So if you say, 
I've got a million dollars worth of investments. That means I'm going to take $40,000 as my uh, retirement income, and I'm going to adjust that for inflation every year. So next year, if inflation is uh, uh, 1% instead of $40,000, i am going to take $40,400 out of my investment portfolio. And if I do that, I should have a very high chance of making it all the way through to the time that I die uh, without running out of money. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, figuring out how much you can spend in retirement is the hardest problem in personal finance. Right. Uh, because you have to turn your pile of investments and saving into income that will last your whole life and you want to try to optimize it or most people do where you want to try to die with your last check just clearing and then zero dollars <laughs> and yeah. it's there's Maybe so by much uncertainty we'll, by in the future we'll have the technology to do that eh? yeah and there's so much uncertainty you don't know when you're going to die you don't know what market returns are going to be that this is a really tough problem and on top of that you don't have as much flexibility to come back like you may not be able to go back to work for health reasons uh, you may not be able to go and save more, uh, whereas when you're younger, you can rely on the ability to save more. So if you decide on a savings rate and then you're wrong, uh, you know, you start saving 10% of your income in your 30s and you go, oops, I needed to save 15, you can try to make it up in your 40s and 50s. Um, you don't really have the ability to course correct in retirement except to sacrifice the quality of life in your retirement by cutting back on spending. Uh, so there's, there's all these... Uh, uncertainties out there but it's really nice to have this handy dandy rule of thumb um so i i love the four percent rule of thumb for someone in their 30s or 40s or 20s even because it lets you set a goal for retirement savings so you can say i want to live on forty thousand dollars of income i'm going to need about a million dollars worth of investments and then you can project how do I get to a million dollars? Well, using some reasonable rate of return, starting at age 30, I need to invest about $10,000 a year to have a million dollars by the time I'm 66, 67 and retiring. Uh, so it's great for just ballparking what you need to save. I'm not as huge a fan of it when it comes to actually spending in retirement because I don't think people will stick to it. Uh, when you see that you've taken money out of your retirement fund and markets have been doing great, and you actually have more than you started the year before. You're like, well, I should be drawing this down a little bit uh, and right. spending more on myself. And then when markets start to crash, you start to panic and think, well, I can't pull this out, even though the 4% rule was built with some uh, history right. of market crashes involved. Uh, and there's also the sequence of returns risk, where if you get a market crash right within the first couple of years of when you retire, the 4%, that's, those are the scenarios where the 4% mm-hmm. rule is going to fail on you. Right. Uh, and finally, the 4% rule was built not including fees. And uh, Michael James on Money is a blog, and he's got some great data on how you should adjust it. But basically, you need to take it down from 4% to, let's say, the 35 or 3.75% rule mm-hmm. uh, to account for the fact that the when the data that was used to come up with the 4% rule didn't include any investment fees, and you cannot escape investment fees. You're going to have to pay something to, for your ETFs, some tax drag, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, that, that's kind of my thoughts on the... Um, 4% rule. I do think that when um, you're younger, it's great to sign up those goals. And when you get close to retirement, again, go visit a fee-for-service planner, uh, pay to have a CFP look at a more personalized plan for you, and then you can see how it's going to work out with their guidance. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because I don't think when retirement is a real thing, people are going to slavishly follow that 4% rule. Um, and in some cases, they shouldn't because of sequence of returns risk. And in some cases, uh, they should without 
trying to tweak too much. But I think it just makes sense that people, if they have um, some money in stocks and bonds, if those do well, they're going to try to spend more. And if they do poorly, they're going to try to spend a little bit less. Uh, so that's also my own thinking when I'm trying to think ahead to what my retirement is going to look like. I don't think I'm going to need – like the 4% rule is also great because it uh, it provides you with something that looks like a salary, which you're used to from years and years of working. Right. So you get that steady every year. I get whatever number you want to use, $40,000 a year, and I can spend that and I can set up a budget around that. But for myself, I don't think that that's how my retirement spending is going to look because I'm going to have some fixed expenses, food and clothing and whatnot, and then some variable expenses. Every couple of years, I'm going to want to replace my car. I'm going to have to repair the roof or uh, do a renovation to the house or whatever it is. And I might get sick and have higher medical bills for a couple of years. So I don't expect that my retirement spending is going to be flat uh, year to year. Uh, you also have to think about what your retirement is going to look like. Do you want to spend more early on when you're kind of still young and spry and healthy and want to travel the world and spend less when you're older? Or will it be the opposite because you'll right. be needing more health care costs and more home care costs and having to pay people to come mow the lawn when you're 80, which is something that you were doing yourself when you were 65. And, mm-hmm. um, all these sorts of things. It gets really complicated. you got to do a lot of thinking about it. So I like to think about it in terms of um, what people call the bucket model where you kind of split up. Uh, your portfolio into different buckets and say, well, this is what I'm going to spend. If I'm 60 now, this is what I'm going to spend when I'm 65. And so I need that money to be kind of safe. And then um, the money that I'm going to spend when I'm 75, I've got 15 years, so I can put more of it towards stocks. And the money that I'm going to spend when I'm 85 and 95, I can put 100% towards stocks or whatever because that's further down. And then I also have some kind of clarity as stocks do better or poorer. I know I'm going to have to start cutting down my future budget while my near term is more secure. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a different way of thinking about it. I don't think it's going to get you an answer that's too much greater or worse than another. Um, and again, a, a planner can help you work through all these things um, a little more precisely as you get closer to retirement and it becomes a real thing versus just I'm 35 and thinking about it now. Right, right, for sure. For sure. No, that's great. No, thanks. That's a really, really great answer. Um, and yeah, I think you mentioned that in your book too, right? They're having it in the different uh, buckets. I think I remember uh, you mentioned that, I think, in your book. I think right? I mentioned the 4% rule as well and uh, okay. sequence of returns risk. And I just kind of like put these in bullet points and was like, this is like advanced topic. Yeah, yeah, exa- exactly. This is where you want to go and get a, get some help. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because I, re- yeah, I remember reading the, when you mentioned the bucket thing. And yeah, it makes it makes a lot of sense. And do use that instead of just saying 4% always, no exceptions, just... <laughs> it, it's better to once you sort of get to that retirement stage to start thinking okay four uh, percent was sort of more macro level and now now that we're there let's let's get a little more tactical and, and try to sort of iron out the details of this so that we're we're spending in the best way and again it depends on you and your personality if uh, a lot of people are more comfortable with something that looks more like a salary so if you're one of those people then you might want to look into either something like a four percent rule or getting something like an annuity where you don't have to worry about market returns. You don't have to worry about uh, some of these other issues. It's just the life insurance company that you buy the annuity from takes your money, your big pile of investments, and they decide how to parcel it out for you so that you get a steady income through retirement. And right. you just have to live to your budget, which is something you've been doing all through your life anyway. Thank you. That that basically answers all the questions I had. Uh, plus, I threw in a few extra ones. I hope that was okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, can you tell um, the listeners about where they can learn more about you, where they can read more of your work? And- sure. So yeah. this is the book, The Value of Simple. And uh, you can find that at valueofsimple.ca. 
Uh, it's available through Amazon, through Indigo, as well as through my own site. Uh, you can get it through Smashwords, through the iBook store, um, in ebook form. And um, I'm trying to think of where else it's available. Uh, you can find my blog at holypotato.net. I blog under the pen name of Potato. Uh, the blog is mostly focused on personal finance. I do rant about real estate. I do rant about uh, internet throttling and usage trace billing and whatever else sort of happens to come to my <laughs> mind. Uh, so it's not strictly personal finance, but you are going to find a lot about that uh, there. And a lot of the topics that I talk about in the book were first developed on the blog. So if you want to see... Uh, more advanced discussions. If you want to get involved, uh, do feel free to drop by holypotato.net. And I'm going to be at the Toronto Public Library coming up on May the 4th at the Agincourt branch with Sandy Martin giving a talk called Money 201 Planning and Investing, which is going to talk about some of the topics in the book, uh, in particular the importance of planning, making uh, your plan fit your life and your emotions and your tolerances, and also the importance of investing, talking about things like how uh, if all you do is save money in a savings account, it's going to be extremely difficult to save for retirement because every dollar you want to spend in retirement, you have to save the hard way, whereas with investing, uh, with long-term compounding and getting a little bit more of return, uh, that's how you're going to pay for retirement by only saving 10, 15, 20% of your income rather than half. Mm -hmm. so. No, that's great. Thank you. And for sure, all those um, I'll have in the show notes as well, all the links, uh, both to your book, to your blog, um, and anything else you'd like. So any any listeners who want to learn more about you um, can also go there as well and, and see basically everything that uh, that you have out there. Great. So no, that's great. Thanks so much for, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, not a problem. Not a problem. All right. Take care. Thanks. Bye. All right. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed part two of the interview with John. If you did enjoy it, I would greatly appreciate it if you went to iTunes or Stitcher and subscribed for free to the podcast so that you automatically get all the latest episodes. Also, if you could give this podcast a rating on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate that too. Subscriptions and ratings like this have a huge impact on how much exposure the podcast actually gets. And the more exposure it gets, the more experts want to come on the show. So it definitely benefits you as well as it lets us get more and more great experts on the show. All right, that's it. Have a great week and I'll see you next week with a new expert interview. And I hope that you subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. All right, take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca.